Good evening. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and um, welcome to the LSE for this evening's event. Marks at 201, the legacy of Karl Marx for the contemporary study of law, politics, and society. My name is Dr. Mike Wilkinson, and I'm an associate professor of law here at the London School of Economics. It's a, a huge pleasure this evening to introduce and to welcome to LSE Professor Bob Jessup, Professor Kostas Lapovitsas, Professor Peter Ramsey, and Professor Leia Upi. Bob Jessup is Distinguished Professor in the Department of Sociology at Lancaster University, who works on changes in contemporary capitalism, state transformation, governance, cultural political economy, and the strategic relational approach to issues of structure and agency. I think it's fair to say that Bob is one of the world-leading scholars of Marxist state theory and is a particular authority on the work of the Greek Marxist Nikos Poulantzas. Kostas Lapovitsas is professor in economics at SOAS, University of London. His research interests include the relationship between finance and development, the structure of financial systems, and the evolution and functioning of the Japanese financial system. He's recently been working on the interaction between market and non-market relations in the financial system. I won't list his long list of publications, but would like to mention his recently published book, The Left Case Against the European Union. Peter Ramsey is a professor of law here in the Department of Law at LSE. His works is on the theoretical connections between criminal law, democracy, and civil liberty, the protection of security interests by criminal law, and the construction of the vulnerable legal subject on which he has published a monograph with Oxford University Press. He's also published work on the leading uh, Soviet-era jurist, uh, Evgeny Pashukanis. Leah Upi is professor in political theory in the Department of Government at LSE. Her research is on normative political theory, enlightenment and political thought, Marxism and critical theory, and nationalism in the intellectual history of the Balkans. Leia has published numerous books in political theory and has recently received the very prestigious uh, Leverhulme Prize for a new uh, book project on political progress. This year celebrates the 201st anniversary of Marx's birth. Yes, we had intended to do this last year, <laughs> but <laughs> I'm sure neither the, the old or young Marx would have cared a jot. The bicentenary is an entirely arbitrary, symbolic date. But what seems less arbitrary is at the present conjuncture the renewed interest uh, in the German philosopher. In the blurb for today's lecture, I presented a puzzle. On the one hand, there is a sense in which we all seem to be Marxists now. It sounds strange, but the virtues of the German philosopher are extolled in the most unlikely of places from the Financial Times to Teen Vogue. If this may be partly explained by the recent flurry of biographies and anniversaries, as well as the bicentenary last year, 2017, saw the anniversary of the publication of Das Kapital, and of course the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution. The growth of interest in Marx over the last decades since the, since the financial crisis is undeniable. More generally, across the pond, 
the big pond. The term socialism has been revitalized on the left of the Democratic Party in the United States, and the specter of socialism has been identified by the White House's own Council of Economic Advisers as necessary once again to banish, devoting 200 pages to the task and beginning by noting back in November that coincident with the 200th anniversary of Karl Marx's birth, socialism is making a comeback in American political discourse, perhaps even more unlikely than Teen Vogue. And yet, the world looks as far removed from any communist or socialist utopia as could be imagined. Capitalism has advanced and accelerated. Neoliberalism remains dominant, or does it? And social democracy is largely in retreat across much of Europe. Other specters than the one Marx imagined may even be haunting Europe. Now, therefore, seems a particularly opportune moment to reflect on the legacy of Karl Marx for the contemporary study of law, politics, and society. Why is his influence so pervasive and resilient? Which of his ideas are redundant? Which remain relevant? To answer these questions, we have a wonderful panel of individual commentators. And what particularly pleases me is that we've managed to cover most, if not all, of the many bases of Marx's own interests, political philosophy, economics, sociology, and, of course, as many of you may know, Marx began his life as a law student, never quite graduating to be a law professor. <laughs> so it is fitting that we are here in the law department to discuss his legacy. Before I hand over uh, to our speakers, uh, just a brief word of housekeeping. Um, I would like you to all please put your uh, mobile phones on silent so as not to disrupt the discussion. Uh, I should also say that this evening's event is being recorded and hopefully will be made available. I say hopefully subject to technical uh, failures or technical successes. Um, it will be made available as a podcast uh, and for Twitter users in the audience... Uh, the hashtag for today's event is uh, LSE Law Marks 201. As usual, you will have the chance to put your questions to speakers after the lecture, but for now, will you please join me in welcoming our speakers? <laughs> and follow the order on the slide. So Bob will be followed by uh, Professor Kostas and the rest should be. Obvious. Thank you very much. Just looking for the mouse. Or, uh, oh, okay. Right. Oh, thanks. Okay. Um, can we have the PowerPoint, please? Good. Okay. Thanks very much. Uh, thanks for the introduction. Uh, Marx discusses the exploitation of labor, and we can't extend the working quarter of an hour, so I'm going to have to intensify my presentation to fill up the, the pause of the working 15 minutes. So uh, I've got my timer, which I'm going to start now. And it's quite common when you're talking about Marx's views on the state to say Marx never produced his theory of the state. I even think it would be impossible for Marx to have written a theory of the state. 
when he's writing about capital very early on in Capital Volume 1, he says when we talk about capital, at first it's only a name. And he was once asked, possibly apocryphally, I've read your Capital Volume 1, and you don't define the capitalist mode of production anywhere. And he says, well, you have to wait until Volume 6 to get the full definition. And this applies, in fact, even more to Marx's theory of the state because the state is such a complex, concrete, institutional phenomenon. The idea you could have a single theory of it is really inconceivable. So what I'm going to do in the time available... It's starting, yeah. Uh, I'll keep an eye on that. In the time available is to present some of Marx's approaches to the state to try to identify what Gramsci would call the permanent and essential elements in Marx's theory, but show its open-endedness at the same time. I'll also be commenting on law. So this is the outline Marx, and indeed Engels, knew only a single science. Uh, I will introduce different approaches to the state, showing how difficult it would be to reconcile them and synthesize them into a single theory. I'm going to take a point that he makes in the foreword to the 1867 introduction to Das Kapital, that every beginning is difficult, holds in all Sciences, And I'm going to show the difficulties he found in getting the right starting point for the analysis of capitalism for law and the state. Then I'm going to suggest that the starting point that he settled on was form analysis, but I'm going to insist that form analysis isn't a fetishization of forms, a reification of forms, and then they reproduce themselves quasi-automatically. It takes an enormous amount of class struggle to reproduce social forms, and there is struggle both over the reproduction of those forms and, of course, within those forms as well. I'm going to insist in that context, when Marx analyzes forms, he's also analyzing contradictions. And contradictions, structural contradictions, translate into strategic dilemmas. So even to talk about structures, to talk about forms, is also to be talking about the sites of class struggle, different strategies, different tactics, and so forth. I'm going to illustrate that with the 18th Brumaire, uh, if there's time. If not, I'll skip those slides. And then I'm going to talk about Marx on crises and end with the idea of the incomplete Marx, which is another reason why one could not reconstruct Marx's theory of the state, even if he had one, because large parts of what would be relevant to a Marxian theory of the state were not completed by Marx. So... Only a single science, this is Marx and Engels in the German ideology, we know only a single science, the science of history. One can look at history from two sides and divide it into the history of nature and the history of men. The two sides, however, are inseparable. The history of nature and the history of men are dependent on each other so long as men exist. So this is a very early foundation for what might one might call Marx's critique of political ecology. This has been analysed in detail by Paul Burkett, uh, by John Bellamy Foster, 
and most recently by Keiho Saito in his Isaac Deutscher Memorial Award-winning book, Marx's Eco-Socialism. And I think it's very important to stress that last book because Saito looks at Marx's excerpt notebooks on the natural sciences and illustrates the extent to which increasingly Marx is engaging with the natural sciences in order to develop his critique of political economy and so forth. So how did Marx analyse the state? Many different ways. We find critiques of political theory comparable to the critiques of economic categories in classical and vulgar political economy, historical analyses of the development changing forms and class character of specific states, historical analyses of specific periods and conjunctures, analyses of the capitalist type of state, and he was well aware there was a particular capitalist type of state that he would describe as formally adequate to the capitalist mode of production. But he also recognized that while there may be a tendency towards the completion of the world market, there was a motley diversity of forms of state. And not every state in a capitalist social formation corresponds to the capitalist type of state. And this again poses a series of challenges on how one might analyze the state. Then we have historical analysis of the state or its equivalents in pre-capitalist times outside Europe, the United States, and then more strategic, politically motivated accounts to intervene in a particular political conjuncture to influence political debates and so forth. Just looking at those six kinds of approach, you can see how difficult it would be to synthesize them into the Marxist theory of the state. We might quote here Antonio Gramsci in further selections from the prison notebook when he's talking about the nature of the crisis in 1929 to 31, where Gramsci says, we can't accept a single account of the crisis. To simplify is to misrepresent. And I would argue that's also true of Marx's accounts of law and the state. To try to reduce it to a simple formula is in fact to misrepresent the character of Marx's analysis. So I said in the 1867 forward, Marx says every beginning is difficult, holds in every science. Actually, that's a direct reference to Hegel's science of logic, who makes exactly the same point in relation to philosophy, which Hegel describes as a reinous vision, a pure science. And I think Marx, when he says he's learned a lot from Hegel, was talking about the science of logic and how one begins, how one finds a starting point for a complex theoretical analysis of a concrete reality. So what are the starting points that Marx tried? This applies both to political economy or civil society, but also to the state. So in the critique of Hegel's philosophy of right, he starts from the separation between state and civil society. By the time we get to the 1844 manuscripts, it's money as a central component of civil society. In the German ideology, we have social relations of reproduction, Proudhon, Money as a Social Relation, 1857 Introduction to the Contribution to the Critique of Political Economy, starting to think about civil society again. The Grundrisse brings in money, exchange, relations, then capital. And finally, in the Contribution to the Critique 
of political economy, Marx identifies the starting point, the beginning, and that is the commodity as the economic self-form of the capital relation, with a very clear reference to contemporary German and French work in cell biology, and we find that also in capital, and then we move on to the civil war in France and the critique of the Gotha program where he finally discovers an alternative form of political organization which is going to be direct democracy rather than constitutional democracy or liberal representative democracy. So let's move on to form analysis. And this is a quotation from Capital Volume 3. The specific economic form in which unpaid surplus labor is pumped out of the direct producers determines the relationship of domination and servitude as this grows directly after production. It's a, you might read this as a simple base superstructure argument. Marx only uses that as a metaphor. Occasionally, it's a much more complicated, co-evolutionary, co-constitutive analysis that's at stake. And we can see this if we go back to Hegel's philosophy of law, where he starts with the separation of state and civil society, where civil society is bourgeois society. It is based on an intensive reading of states and societal development in Europe, English and French revolutions, political and constitutional theory. KE here stands for the Kreuznacher Exert Hefter, which he was making in 1843. In 1844, he went on to produce a draft plan for a book on the state. And what's there is basically 11 points, starting from the history of the modern state, looking at the development of equality, freedom, citizenship, and so forth, going on to look at the structures of the state, going on to look at nationality and peoples, going on to look at forms of crisis, and so forth. I think we can take that as a guiding thread that he turns to again and again, but enriches as he goes along. The state is an alienated form of political organization based on the separation of rulers and ruled that takes different forms in different class-based formations. In bourgeois society, against Hegel, it rests on the separation of the public sphere with the state at its center where politics is oriented to the collective interest and civil society dominated by private property, individual self-interest, and in the capitalist mode of production, uh, wage labor. But the modern state can only represent an illusory community of interest that obscures the continuing antagonisms, crass materialism, and egoistic conflicts. Very early on, in 1844, he says the state's based on the contradiction between public and private life, on the contradiction between general interests and private interests. And insofar as the state abstains from intervening in the organization of the low process, insofar as it abstains from intervening in managerial prerogative, it cannot steer, cannot guide the development of capital accumulation. To try to overcome that means, in fact, to overcome the separation between state and civil society. In the Communist Manifesto, he discusses, as he'd already anticipated in the 1844 draft for the book, an analysis of the rise of the modern state. The bourgeoisie 
with the establishment of large-scale industry on the world market, has finally gained exclusive political control through the modern representative state. Pashukanis takes up this idea. Why does the dominance of a class in capitalist type of state... So I'm just trying to get my... Okay, uh, take the form of official state domination, or which is the same thing. Why is the mechanism of state constraint not created as the private mechanism of the dominant class? In other words, in contrast to pre-capitalist societies, why is there not a formal monopoly of political and legal power in the hands of the ruling classes? An answer is where exploitation takes the form of exchange, Dictatorship may take the form of democracy. And Marx analyzes that in detail, especially in Capital One. Moving on, uh, I'm going to skip Pashukanis there. I want to move on again to the idea of contradiction. In Class Struggles in France, uh, Marx writes that the democratic uh, constitution contains a comprehensive contradiction. It puts the classes whose social slavery this democratic constitution is to perpetuate proletariat peasantry, petty bourgeoisie, in possession of political power via universal suffrage. He's writing about France. Um, And from the bourgeois class, whose old social power it sanctions, it forces the political rule of the bourgeoisie into democratic conditions, which at every moment help the hostile classes to victory, and jeopardize the very foundations of bourgeois society. From the first group, the oppressed, it demands they should not advance from political to social emancipation. From the second, the ruling classes, the economically dominant class, they should not seek a political restoration. How is it possible to reconcile that contradiction? The answer, quite clearly, from German ideology onwards up to people like Gramsci, is the struggle for hegemony to define the illusory national interest which is accepted by the proletariat, peasantry, petty bourgeoisie, and within which they limit the forms of class struggles. So that economic struggles will normally occur within the logic of the free market, wages, hours, working conditions, prices, perhaps the social wage. Political struggle will normally occur within the logic of a representative state based on the rule of law. Break that separation, workers go on a general strike, break that separation and workers in control of the state start to nationalise industries, interfere in the labour process and so forth, the system collapses. Hence the importance of struggles for hegemony. And this, I'm going to move on now to Gramsci, who comes up with a definition of the state which I think would have been firmly embraced by um, Marx himself. The state is the entire complex of practical and theoretical activities with which the ruling class not only justifies and maintains its domination, but manages to win active consent of those over whom it rules. Absent that, that comprehensive contradiction leads to political crises, constitutional crises, general strikes, etc. And this is from the viewpoint of the subordinate classes. 
the ruling classes, based on the Gramsci quotation, but also Marx's analysis, don't fetishize the separation. It's, it's crucial for the working classes that they accept that fetishistic separation, but it's not accepted by the ruling classes. They will intervene any which way they can to maintain their rule, which is the, the point of Gramsci. The 18th Brumaire, uh, Mike, I've run out of my 15 minutes. How much more are you going to give me? I, I will generally give you a couple more minutes. Okay, a couple more minutes is enough. Uh, 18th Brumaire, what that's looking at is the specificity of political struggles in a modern state. It, Marx is absolutely clear in the 18th Brumaire and elsewhere. <laughs> you cannot trace economic class interests and put them directly into the political sphere. There is an autonomy to the institutions, the structure, the institutional architecture of the state. And instead of trying to look directly, this is that class interest, that's another class interest, is calculating the class relevance of different kinds of political struggle. You'll be familiar with the argument, men make their own history, but not in circumstances of their own choosing. Everybody thinks that's to do with structures. Immediately afterwards, Marx refers to the dead weight of tradition, the inability to think revolution by thinking in terms of old categories. And he calls for a new poetry of the future, which is forward-looking, not backward-looking. So I'm going to skip those things. Paris Commune, and that'll be my last slide, okay? Uh, the Civil War in France and Paris Commune were key events in leading Marx and his final view on the state. And his key lesson that he states was the instrument of the oppression of dominated classes cannot also be the instrument of its emancipation. We need a new form of state that overcomes that separation between the economic and the political and gives direct control to workers, citizens, and so forth over the nature of the state. I'm going to finish there with just a couple of points. One, nothing that I have said would lead me to want to produce the Marxist theory of the state. Secondly, that Marx's capital was originally planned to have six books. The fourth book was going to be on foreign trade, the next was going to be, oh, sorry, the fourth book was going to be on the state, then we were going to get foreign trade and then the world market and crises. If capital is only a name and the state is only a name and the complete account requires us to look at what he might have written, then we cannot, based purely on the text that we have that are published, deduce the Marxist theory of the state, because by the time you bring in his views on the state, by the time you bring on his views on world trade, and you look at the world market, all of the views that we've taken for granted would have changed. And that's where I'm going to leave it. I'll let you do that. Good evening. Um, it is, of course, a pleasure to be here. And um, I haven't got very much time, so what I will tell you is that when Mike asked me to do this, and I said yes, um, I, was in, I was troubled by what to say. How does one pay 
um, homage to Marx and bring out his continuing relevance in 15 minutes. What do I do? Do I talk about his economics? Would I, do I talk about the financialization of capitalism, the tendency of the rate of profit to fall? Um, how can I do that and make it interesting in 15 minutes? And then it dawned upon me, what better way of um, indicating the relevance of Marx by bringing out uh, the importance of his thought for a burning issue of the day. And which issue might be more burning in this country than the European Union? <laughs> so um, there were. I decided to uh, use some key ideas of Marx to indicate precisely what I'm showing up there, the fetish of the EU. But there is something else behind it. There's another reason why I made that choice, which I only realized belatedly when I decided to do that. There's something that had been bothering me for quite some time. I've been involved in things Greek for some time now, and in particular I've been involved with the, the Greek disaster since about 2010 when it fully burst out. And he had ups and downs and hopes and disappointments and the rest of it. But there's one thing that I never managed to explain, one thing that always bothered me, and it is this. The Greek case and the Greek disaster revolved around the Eurozone, the membership of the country by, by the country of the EU, of the European Monetary Union. Now, any rational observer will tell you that the Euro has been disastrous for Greece. Any rational observer will tell you that. And yet, at no point throughout these nine years did support for the euro among the Greek people drop below 70%. At all times, it was 70% and above. Why? What explains that? How can one rationally explain that? Now, you might think Greece is a small and peculiar country, which in some ways it is. But look at this center of... Uh, uh, capitalist world power, this ex-imperial power that used to ru rule the waves. Look at the shenanigans of the last few weeks. And look at what has been happening in this country, which has historically been the most Eurosceptic of them all, and suddenly, through some peculiar process, has become one of the most Europhile of them all. And you get three to 400,000 people demonstrating in the streets of London. How? Why? What is it? How can one rationally explain that? I, we can come up with all sorts of culturally based ex explanations, we can come up with class explanations, all that is value, but it's not enough. None of that is enough, for me, at, a, at any rate. So I suggest to you that Karl Marx might offer some insight. Karl Marx might be useful in understanding how that uh, can be. So to do that, without further ado, we need to go for a little detour to Hegel. Because like most powerful things in Marx, you'll find some Hegelian root behind them. So Hegel doesn't write about fetishes, but he writes about objectification. Objectification is a very important idea in Hegel. So the spirit, consciousness, which is the way that uh, humanity essentially confronts the outside world, becomes objectified in the outside world. That is the basic Hegelian idea. It becomes objectified in things. These things become estranged from the spirit, from humanity. And by becoming estranged from it, acquire power over it until they're reappropriated by the spirit. As the spirit expands, 
and engulfs the world and unfolds itself and becomes absolute. So that basic Hegelian idea will not be found in Marx, certainly not in mature Marx, but the idea of objectification will, and that's important. The next step in this is, of course, the left Hegelians, the heirs of Hegel, um, who fought out among themselves. So the left wing of that, Marx belonged to it for a while, used that basic idea of objectification to explain religion, to propose a view of religion. And religion is basically the projection of human essence, not the spirit in this case, certainly not in the Hegelian way, but human essence onto a religious other. It is actually an inversion of reality. It's not God that creates man, but man creates God for the left Hegelians and projects onto God what humanity would like itself to be. So it is an inversion and an imaginary inversion. It happens in the head. It happens in the brain. That is the left Hegelian approach to religion, and Marx was very influenced and very interested in that when he was a young man, when he began to discuss uh, these issues uh, in his 20s. That is very closely related to the idea of the fetish. The debate was common in Europe in the 1830s, 1840s. It was common in relation to the evolution of religions, religions that contained fetishes or what Europeans understood as fetishes at the time were thought to be the lowest type of religion for reasons that I will explain. Uh, and the fetish, or what they thought was the fetish, was basically the notion they had of how uh, West African societies understood religion. We don't have to consider the anthropological foundations of that. That's, we now know it's incorrect. They didn't really understand African religion, but that's not the important thing. The important thing is that the fetish for the left Hegelians, but also for Marx, the religious fetish, is the externalization of the human essence in a religious way, but onto a thing, onto a material thing, onto a piece of metal, a piece of wood, which is endowed and has incredible properties ascribed to it. And humanity projects itself onto that thing. Another, then, which is fetishized and acquires power over humanity. That, then, is the classic early idea of the fetish, which you find in the first writings of Marx, the first, I find, the first reference I find in Marx in this, is an article he wrote in the Rheinische Zeitung. He was all of 24 years of age, would you believe? Then he doesn't write very much about it. There's the odd reference in the uh, economic and philosophical, uh, the Paris manuscripts, just a few lines, and then nothing, silence, effectively until the first volume of Das Kapital, which he produces in 1867, which is almost 25 years later. And there we have the classic exposition of commodity fetishism. That has become a standard uh, reference point in a variety of disciplines, which goes something like this, and I'll take a few minutes on it. It starts with the equation of, ex of exchange, the Edgeworth box, x of, y, x, x of A equals Y of B. What have we got here? and I'll run very fast, the value of x is represented by the body of b. x becomes, uh, a becomes like b. The value of a is represented in the body of b. What is the value of a? Human labor. What is human labor? The essence of humanity, for Marx. The essence uh, of human beings. So essence becomes represented onto a thing, becomes externalized onto a thing. This externalization 
through a complex process, ultimately becomes money. Money is the universal. So the essence of human beings, labor, becomes condensed and expressed, externalized in money as the universal. As another. A thing like other. This other, then, generates an objective structure. It generates an objective structure. It becomes an objective reality out there that produces and circulates value, the economy. The economy is the original fetishized, externalized essence. It is something that looks at us from the outside, has its own logic, it moves in its own way, and it forces human activity to comply with its own dictates. Because if it doesn't, the economy won't like it. The economy will catch cold. The economy will get angry. It's the economy, stupid. Fetishization, condensed. That then is um, the uh, classic uh, perception of the fetish. And the point I wish to make here is that unlike the imaginary fetish, which is the religious fetish I started with, in other words, imagining, imagining God and creating God in your own image, unlike the imaginary fetish, this is a real fetish. The fetish of the commodity is a real fetish, and the distinction is very important. It is real in what sense? It is real in the sense that if you've got exchange, the value of commodity, X of A equals Y of B, cannot but be expressed in the body of another. There is no other way of doing it. The only other way of doing it would be to abolish commodity exchange, of course. But in a capitalist economy, that cannot be, and therefore you must have the externalization uh, of value and of uh, the essence of humanity. That, then, is a real essence created by the world, created by the economy. What does it mean? It means something very simple. The imaginary fetish, the religious fetish, I can get rid of. I can sit back, read a lot of books, and come to the realization that the fetish I've got in front of me is a piece of wood, a stone, a piece of metal, not God. And I'm free of it. And I can be free of it in my own head. The real fetish is not like that. I can understand it all I like. I can comprehend capitalism all I like. The minute I step outside my front door, the fetish will hit me in the face. <laughs> because I might go to the shop owner and explain, this is actually the value of my labor power. <laughs> it's actually worth, and it's actually worth 25 minutes. And you not understand, it's abstract labor equalizing. So you will say 25 pounds, please. <laughs> so in that sense, the economy makes me comply with the real fetish. The economy creates the fetish and it, it applies on us. To be free of the real fetish, there has to be a rupture. There has to be a rupture. There has to, to change, we have to change the institutions of the economy. That's the way to do it. There has to be a violent break that will free humanity. Now, the cleverest among you will have worked out where I'm going right now. Because when we look at the EU, what do we see? A priori evidence of fetish. Doesn't take long. What we've got is an objective economic, political, and ideological structure out there, very complex, with its own internal logic. There's no doubt at all about it. There are departments devoted to this, examining the logic of it and how it works, the objective nature of it out there. It is an objective structure which requires compliance with its own dictates at the cost of severe disturbance. You must comply with what it tells you, and that's how you perceive, you perceive it. And not only this, and that's where Britain is so important, and that's why the Greek experience is so important, it is also sacralized, is the German literature. 
increasingly says, and as Wolfgang Streck said right from this um, podium not so long ago, it is sacralized and moralized. It has become the embodiment of all, all that is good in Europe. This thing out there is the encapsulation, the crystallization of all the goodness of European civilization. That, I think, is beyond doubt if you read much of the literature uh, on it. Evidence, then, of the fetish. More evidence of it, of the fetish, is that this is actually an inversion of reality. And that is something well known among academics. It's not new. This isn't my discovery. This is actually from the academic literature. It is well known that it is an inversion of reality, which you would expect the fetish to do. In what way? The EU appears as an emasculation and irrelevance of the nation state. But anyone who studies the EU knows that it is actually the creature of the nation state, and nation states are in there, active, projecting their power, projecting their interests, and manipulating their relations in order to further their own interests. The nation state has not gone away. It is actually within the uh, EU. Second, the EU appears as the embodiment of free movement um, among its people, but it's at the same time the absolute negation of, a fr of free movement outside its borders. It is actually a combination of the two, and it must be combined in that in order to have free movement. You must forbid free, free movement to people from outside it. Third, it appears as a democratic totality, the epitome of democracy. When most academics will tell you the democratic deficit is vast, and the mechanisms and the institutions of the EU are largely impervious to free will, to democratic will. They are designed to be impervious to democratic will. So there is evidence of the fetish in the inversion of reality. But what are the roots of it? Okay, we recognize it. What are the roots of it? How I would understand the roots of this fetish? Here I would argue that the roots of it are economic. That's what makes it different. That's why the fetish has become so much stronger the last 25 years. The roots of it are economic, and they are very simply single market, single currency. The creation of a homogeneous economic space across Europe, an economic space for the accumulation of capital, an economic space for the motion of capital across borders and the movement of monies across borders without friction. The creation of a unified space in which capital can continue to make profits in the best possible way for big business. It's a hard and objective totality with its own integral logic for this single market a single currency are a very hard thing. You don't play around with it. It tells you what to do. It has, it, has a, it, has a, it has a very coherent and strong logic within it. And it delegitimizes disturbance that might be affected through human activity. You can't do what you like. You can vote to have a policy that you like. If the structure doesn't like it, you're not going to have it. It's going to stop you from having it. It is actually against human intervention in this uh, way. Big banks and big business support this underlying structure. Now, I'm coming to an end. As you can imagine, I would have spoken for much longer on this. But I'm coming to an end now. And I want to wrap it up in this way. The EU fetish, the way I see it, is both imaginary but also real. It is imaginary because countries project onto the EU a desired image of themselves. You can see it particularly for countries outside the EU, but also for countries within it. Take Turkey. The Turks imagine that the EU is the epitome of all democracy, of all progress, uh, and what have you. And they imagine that by joining the EU, they will actually take their own society by the scruff of the neck and move it in that direction, or at least some Turks imagine that. It is actually, it is actually 
the fetishization of the EU because you cannot do what you need to do in your own country and you project it outside onto something else uh, outside your own borders. But the fetish is also real. It is also real for the countries that are within it because of the single market and the single currency. And how do we know it is real? In two ways, which became very clear to me in the context of the Greek crisis. What explained the 70%? Two things. The first is fear. The fear that if you go against this mechanism, you will lose your savings, you will lose your job, the everyday reality of life will be destroyed. It's a fear that is actually a real fear. Yes, that, there are risks of that. It is a real fetish, in other words. And there is also identity. The second is identity. Identity in the sense that if you move outside that structure, you will not be European any longer. The Greeks might become like the Albanians. Or like the Turks, God forbid. The English... <laughs> The English might not become, might cease becoming European or whatever else it is. It's identity, condensing and condensed in this entity out there that looks at Europe through fetishized eyes. How do you confront it? And with this I finish. Real fetishes require real responses. Marx taught us this. Imaginary fetishes you can fight in the head. You can tell. Free yourself and work it out. Real fetishes require real responses. The EU real fetish cannot be thought away. You cannot think it away. You can discover it all you like. You can have academic articles and academic researches on it. You're not going to think it away. Real fetishes require real responses. And in the case of the EU, this means a rupture with the single market and with the single currency, the foundation of the real fetish. In other words, a rupture with big business and big banks. This is what Marx tells you again. If you don't rupture with reality, if you don't break with it, you can't achieve very much. A socialist challenge is necessary, in other words. We now know very clearly a socialist challenge is necessary to these, to, to these conditions, and that is a precondition for the emancipation of Europe. That is a precondition for the true emancipation of Europe. And in this respect, I think Karl Marx remains as relevant as ever. Thank you. I strongly agree with Kostas that um, Marxism or Marx's, Marx's theories contain great resources for us in trying to understand uh, our contemporary uh, problems. But I want to bend the stick a little bit and uh, suggest to you, describe to you uh, a problem that I see with Marxism uh, and with Marxist theory uh, and then maybe a, a tentative solution. Or for the Marxists in the room and the would-be Marxists in the room, I want to give you the bad news first and then the slightly better news uh, after. In uh, his second thesis uh, on Feuerbach, uh, Marx writes the following. The question whether objective truth can be obtained by human thinking is not a question of theory but is a practical question. It is in practice that man must prove the truth, that is the reality and power of his thinking. Or as his comrade Frederick Engels put it, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. 
the practical orientation of Marx's uh, theory was critical to his whole concept of scientific socialism. It was a theory of revolution. It was a theory of political change brought about by the working class. And it has an important implication, uh, Marx's uh, statement of scientific socialism there. If Marxism is to be consistent, then Marxism itself must be subject to the same test. The reality and power of Marxism is a practical question or I should say was a practical question, because Marxism, Marxism was put to that test and it failed. The recipe was beautiful, lovely, but the pudding turned out to be no good. After a century of class struggle, more than a century of class struggle, in which Marxism was a major influence on politics, the working class did not overthrow the state, they did not transcend capitalism. On the contrary, the capitalists destroyed the working class movement. I was there in the late 1980s uh, and experienced it as a partisan. But you don't have to believe me. Look at this, a graph of days lost to strikes per thousand workers in Australia. Look what happens in the late 80s and the 90s into the noughties. New Zealand, more dramatic still. Canada, who knew? A bit more life in Canada uh, in, the, in the class struggle. Um, but the United States, similar. The United Kingdom, that's the English-speaking world. You could show similar graphs uh, for the whole industrialised world. Look around you, and everywhere you will find people who work for wages. Uh, you'll find more of them than have ever existed on the planet, both proportionally and absolutely. But you will not find a working-class movement. You will not find a movement that pursues the interests of wage earners in antagonism with the interests of the owners of capital. There honor, with the honourable exception in this country, with the honourable exception of the RMT union, the entire movement is an empty shell. The life was sucked out of it fully 30 years ago. So one of the lessons, the universal class does not exist as a conscious force. The one that Marx, Marx's theory of scientific socialism depended on, and one of the lessons that he has taught me, and which I keep in mind, is that Marxism in its own terms failed. Now the Marxists among you might say, well, steady on, uh, you know, it was never properly implemented, it was not properly understood, well, at least not since 1924 when Lenin died. Um, and we can do that, we can have that argument afterwards if you've got time. Uh, I've been through it many, many times. And maybe there's something in it. Um, more plausible, but we had 60 years after 1924 and we still didn't pull it off. I say we. Um, so uh, I, doubt, I have my doubts about that and we have reasons we could talk about it. More plausibly, you could say to me, uh, the working class is back. There are serious signs of labor unrest in the United States at the moment. They are, um, it's been a long time coming, but um, strikes are back. Union organization looks like it's back. And there's obvious signs of political unrest amongst the working class in Europe who are returning to the streets. And um, from the point of view of any Democrat, uh, this is healthy. But um, the earlier, even if this is true, it doesn't seem to me to be a reason to return to the old-time religion. And the reason why we can't simply go back is to be found in another more famous passage uh, from Marx, which uh, uh, Bob mentioned earlier. Men make their own history, but they do not make it as they please. They do not make it under self-selected circumstances, but under circumstances existing already, given and transmitted from the past. And we cannot make history, not make history that we intend to make, the history we want to make, 
if we do not understand our circumstances, and chief among our circumstances is the absence of a working class movement. And that's chief among our circumstances because this changes the nature of capitalist society. The absence of the movement of organised labour changes the nature of the society. It has denuded the society of the one significant social force which had an unequivocal interest in democracy, in self-determination. Uh, from the French Revolution until 1989, democracy was the driving force, one of the driving forces, along with the accumulation of capital uh, of Western politics. And since 1989, democracy is almost everywhere uh, in decay. And it changes society, not only you may think that's a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know, but the ruling class itself has had to adapt to this significant change. And uh, as I will shortly argue, it hasn't, it's only been partially successful in adapting to that change. Now, the non-Marxists amongst you may say, what problem? Why is this a problem? You said this was a problem. Who cares? It's not a problem. We always told you Marxism was rubbish, uh, and so it proved. Um, well, this is the problem. The problem is that all the alternative theories, or not all the, well, maybe all the alternative theories, but certainly the two major political theories which replaced Marxism, which did successfully reorganize the state, they have failed in turn. The most important is uh, modern liberalism, social liberalism, welfare liberalism, the welfare state, those, that theory derived from Hegel's philosophy of right. Um, they, that, that organization crashed and burned in the 70s for reasons that Michael Kalecki, Marxist thinker, uh, explained. Uh, and was replaced by the so-called neoliberalism, the attempt to reproduce the conditions of competition through uh, government regulation, and that is visibly failing before our eyes. That's why so many of you are here to hear this. Um, <laughs> the theories, uh, those theories were theories that said that one circumstance that hasn't changed, that Marx identified, didn't matter, and that circumstance was the fundamental social problem, that capitalism has unleashed the productive force of humanity, the awesome productive force of humanity, and yet simultaneously denied us conscious control of it, so that we cannot control our own forces, to come back to a theme of Costas's. And our, uh, as a consequence, we have this out-of-control productive system and a ruling class with no idea what to do. That all the theories have broken down. Marxism may have failed, but the others have too. So that's our problem. Our increasingly chaotic politics is a consequence of this failure. So Marxism has failed, but so have all the others. It contains still great uh, resources, but we need to keep in mind the central uh, fact of that failure and its consequences. Now, what's the solution? Well, I make no great claims for the originality of my solution. People have said it before, but I'll say it again. The solution, um, and I haven't got very far in doing this myself, but the solution I think, or one solution I would suggest, is to stop thinking, or don't think like a Marxist, think like Marx. And when I say don't think like a Marxist, I mean when you come across, a, when you're studying a, a problem and, uh, uh, and you want to work out um, its movement, understand its movement, understand its tensions, understand where it's going, where society is going in this particular area, don't try and take Marxist concepts and apply them to reality. Rather, um, do what Marx himself did uh, and develop your concepts from your study uh, of social reality. I'll give an example, an example from, oh, it's what, I tried, what I've tried to do in the study of the criminal law, okay, so I, uh, I study the criminal law and I tried to do this. Um, I looked at the, um, the criminal legislation of the, the 90s and the noughties, of the high point of neoliberalism and the third way, 
And I, I think it illustrates something of what's changed significantly uh, since the defeat of the working class movement 30 years ago. I didn't start with theories. I started with the law because I wanted to pursue what I took to be the method of immanent critique. Here's David Harvey's account of it, which I've slightly uh, um, uh, paraphrased. I provisionally accepted the methodological presuppositions, substantive premises, and truth claims of the criminal law, and I tested the assumptions made by the law by the law's own standards. I identified the law's own premises and assertions in order to find the contradictions within them. That was the idea. Uh, And the purpose of doing that is to try and understand, to see, to identify how they're in motion, even in the present. What did I find? Well, the contemporary criminal law, as those of you will know, contemporary criminal law, recent criminal legislation, the legislation of the neoliberal era, is characterised by harassment (coughs) offences, speech offences, preventive offences, trying to prevent people from committing other crimes, preventive orders, which you you commit an offence if you breach them. They're all offences. What unites them all is that they seek to punish people not for an invasion of other people's freedom or for a harmful act in itself, but for being dangerous. They all seek out and try and punish people for being a risk of harm. And in doing so, they are quite different from bourgeois criminal law, and I'll use the Marxist term uh, advisedly. They're quite different from the classical bourgeois criminal law. They... um, where bourgeois criminal law seek to punish people for invasions of other people's liberty. Contemporary criminal law has turned towards punishing people preemptively for being dangerous. Bourgeois criminal law imagined the law's subjects as proprietors, as subjects of an abstract individual freedom, as choosing individuals and sought with the threat of punishment to protect uh, the preconditions of that abstract freedom, people's property in their person and in uh, in their property. So we have laws of theft and homicide and assaults and sexual offences and so on. Contemporary criminal law, by contrast, imagines the law subjects not as these choosing free subjects, but as vulnerable subjects. And specifically, we are vulnerable subjects because we are exposed to the dangerous choices that other subjects will make. And hence, we need these preventive laws. And that characterises all of our contemporary criminal legislation, or all, I exaggerate a little bit, the dominant theme. That abstract personhood of the bourgeois society is no longer the interest that is upheld by the criminal law. Abstract personhood, the freedom of choice, is in fact the source of the threats to be policed and coerced by the criminal law. This understanding uh, of personhood and its relation to law is not only different from the classical legal construction, it's a negative image of it. These laws are one sign that bourgeois society, bourgeois society proper, has ended. We still live in a capitalist society, but it is no longer the bourgeois society that Marxists faced back in the day. See, I knew it was impossible. Um, (laughs) But I went early. I went early, so got a minute. Um, Robust individuality is out, vulnerability is in. Vulnerability is a virtue, as I'm sure you're aware. People claim it. Vulnerable subjects will see risk and danger everywhere and they will demand that the state seeks to protect them from it. They will see other subjects not as participants in, uh, in the process of democratic self-government or of politics but as malign threats to their safety. Anxiety, distrust, fear are institutionalised in this order. It is a new contemporary form of divide and rule. Impossible in the old order. Impossible for this reason. It contains a contradiction 
The contradiction is that these laws seek to protect us from, by preempting other people's uh, commission of criminal offences. But we already have those other criminal offences. The pro premise of the law is that the criminal law doesn't work. That's why we have to preempt people earlier on. We're all vulnerable, despite the existence of the law of homicide and the law of assaults. The criminal law doesn't work. That's the premise of the state's own laws. These laws amount to an authoritative statement of the law's lack of authority. For 20 years, Parliament has been churning out these laws, coding their own lack of authority into the criminal law. Now we see that that lack of authority is on the surface of politics in these weeks. We see the lack of Parliament's political authority on the surface of our politics as Parliament desperately tries to stay within the European Union against uh, its own promises and its own mandate. Such a paradoxical legal order is only possible, a, pa a legal order which is based on the state telling us that we're vulnerable despite its powers, protecting us from its own lack of authority. It's only possible because there is no alternative to the existing order. And there is no alternative because the movement of the working class for democracy is in abeyance at best. To conclude, what's the good news? Where's the slightly better news in this? The slightly better news is the working class movement may have been seen off and destroyed, but the ruling class is ruined too. And you see it every day in Parliament. It's a ruin. Its sovereignty is a ruin. Hobbes's Leviathan, gone. That's the situation. Now, I'm sympathetic with Yanis Varoufakis on one point, not on most of what he says, but on one point. The, the, the revolution isn't around the corner, but the collapse of the bourgeois, what we call the bourgeois order, is very much on the agenda, and we should take this very seriously. It means that we need to... Uh, the ruin of the contending classes is one possibility that Marx um, considered, and it, if we look at that seriously, if we take our contemporary reality seriously, it changes... Um, the nature of our tasks. Our tasks are different, and they're different in two particular ways. We can't continue with the critique of abstract individual freedom that Marxists went on with. That's not just missing the target, that's actually engaging in the repressive action of the state. It's, it's fueling the ideological repression of woke authoritarianism. The other is that where, um, and I'll finish on this, where Marxism uh, and the Marxist revolution faced a structure of authority, of serious authority, which combined traditional authority with the claim of individual freedom and had to overthrow it, we have the inverse problem. We face no authority at all and have to find a way to constitute ourselves as a collective authority that's able to take decisions, that's able to uh, create a society in which we are self-determining and not afraid of each other. Thanks. So like, um, like the previous speakers, I had the challenge of talking about Marx and its relevance and Marxism and its relevance in 15 minutes. And so you think, okay, what do I do to explain Marx? I have to start with Hegel. To explain Hegel, I have to start with Kant. To explain Kant, I have to go back to Leibniz and Hume. And to explain those, I have to go back to Aristotle. So like Costas, I thought, okay, I'll pick a burning issue, which since I knew he was going to talk about the EU, is not the EU. <laughs> but is actually migration. And migration is a problem for the left, just like in a similar way, like the EU is a problem for the left. It kind of throws the left in confusion and panic. 
And there's two ways in which the left is worried about migration. There is a kind of pragmatic way and there is a principled way. So the pragmatic way is that, you know, we are socialists, we want to advance the cause of the working classes. In order to advance the cause of the working classes, we need to gain power. In order to gain power in liberal representative democracies, we have to win elections. In order to win elections, we have to compete with other political parties and political movements. And since it looks like migration is a big deal for all these other political parties and political movements, in fact, they seem to blame migrants for most of the troubles and failures of contemporary liberal democracy, capitalism, everything. For pragmatic, strategic reasons, the left feels pressed to compete with the right on migration and on restrictions to migration. And you can see the symptoms of the confusion if you think about Ed Miliband's control immigration mugs. I mean, you know Ed Miliband doesn't really care about immigration. You know he doesn't really care about controlling borders. You know he's a socialist, he's a universalist, he's a cosmopolitan. And yet, when he's there about to run for elections, and when he thinks he might win the elections, what does he do? He produces a mug that says tougher control on borders as a way of competing with anti-immigrant populist rhetoric. So that's the kind of pragmatic argument. But there is also a more principled argument that has been advanced by some quarters of the radical left this time that is apparent in the migration stance of movements like Aufstehen in Germany, for example, or La France Insoumise in France, where the argument is that the left must make a case about migration, but the case shouldn't be a moralized one. It should be a materialistic case. And so... Jean-Luc Mélenchon has recently famously said, we mustn't be afraid of talking about migration and we mustn't be afraid of saying that working class jobs and social gains are in some ways threatened by immigrants. So the left position against open borders is different from the pragmatic position and it's obviously also different from the xenophobic, racist and scaremongering that the right presents us with when they talk about migration. And it's different because it's premised on a kind of commitment to class politics. It's about the working classes. We care about the working classes, so we need to make sure that the social gains and the jobs and the rights and the claims that the working classes have acquired historically through their social struggles aren't threatened by liberal cosmopolitan elites whose uh, policies on open borders, deregulated migration, serve particular consolidated interests. So this is a kind of attitude that comes from a critique of globalization that is a class-based critique of globalization that is concerned about the working classes, that is a critique of the wealthy elites that make free trade agreements and lobby for the free movement of people because they are actually served in their interests by uh, deregulated labor, by poor citizens being threatened with their salaries and their rights and so on. So I want to try and make in the ten minutes that I now have a different leftist case on migration that is also a class-based case and that is actually inspired by something that one Karl Marx wrote in a famous letter to two um, international, German internationalists active in New York, Siegfried Meyer and August Vogt, in which Marx comments about Im Irish immigration to England and what that implies for working class struggle. So I'm going to read you the short passage of that letter where Marx says the following. 
Every industrial and commercial center in England now possesses a working class divided in two hostile camps, English proletarians and Irish proletarians. The ordinary English worker, he continues, hates the Irish worker as a competitor who lowers his standard of life. He cherishes religious, social, and national prejudices against the Irish worker. His attitude towards him is much the same as that of the <coughs> poor whites to the niggers in former slave states of the United States. And the Irish, in turn, Marx argues, pay him back with interest in his own money. The Irish sees in the English worker both the accomplice and the stupid tool of the English ruler in Ireland. So I think this Marx letter offers us two insights on which we can build when we think about what migration should mean to the left from a kind of left that is not moralizing but grounded in a materialistic interest, in a sort of materialistic theory of history like the Marxist one. So the first one concerns the relationship between migration in the present and the relationship to the past of the countries that worry about migration. It is impossible, and this is, I think, what we infer from the Marxist writings on Irish migration in England, to talk about the reality of migration in isolation from the legacy of colonialism and neo-colonialism. So it's well known that migrants frequently come from geographical areas and political communities that haven't yet recovered from the legacy of colonial violence and exploitation by the wealthiest European states during the period of accumulation of capital. But what do we often forget when we talk about migration? We know about the past. We know where these people come from. What we do forget often is that historical injustice continues in the present political institutions that we have. So similar patterns of appropriation of land, resources, and labor power are pervasive in the form of favorable trade deals, debt dependency, brain drain, and much more. So when the left accepts the argument that foreign workers threaten domestic workers' jobs and social gains, it implicitly endorses a liberal analysis of the state as a kind of unitary system of cooperation where the advances of rights and claims by particular social groups, say representatives of the working classes, give them the historical rights and privileges that they now have. But this is a problem, because if we think about the development of working class struggles, but also the development of working class privileges in the light of the history of colonialism, then I think we will understand what Marx means when he talks about, in relation to the English worker, that the English worker feels himself as a member of the ruling nation and so turns himself into a tool of the aristocrats and capitalists of his country against Ireland, therefore strengthening the domination over himself. So the problem from a Marxian perspective that looks at migration in connection to the history of colonialism is that we forget about the exploitation of the ruling elites and we become defensive of the political community that we belong to. We identify the agency of the working class is identified with the progressive agency of the state that gives rights, claims, and privileges. So this is where colonialism comes in. Working class struggles for decent pay and workplace rights have, of course, historically played an incredibly important role in the advances that the working classes have made in Western capitalist advanced societies. 
But on the other hand, it would be naive to dismiss the structural and material international institutional preconditions that have enabled the ruling elites of these states to make these concessions to the working classes. So this is where the kind of asymmetrical shape of the current international order, the benefits and the advantages that liberal Western wealthy states gain, is what makes them afford these concessions to the working classes of their own countries. So it's the kind of the advantages and the gains of domestic working classes are premised on the fact that in the international sphere, their states are able to manipulate and dominate their former subordinate colonies because the international order basically inherits the same hierarchies of power and wealth that characterized historical and colonial relations. This is why, for Marx, migration and the colonial history of Ireland and England are connected, and this is why we should think about migration every time we assess it in the light of this connection with colonialism. So, and the upshot of this is that the working classes' hegemonic uh, states, in hegemonic states, have benefited from this colonial advantage. And so it's kind of easy to forget about the colonial advantage that we benefit when we claim the fruits of our labor and when we claim the rights and privileges that uncontrolled immigration allegedly threatens. So that's the one point about the relationship between migration's present and the past. So the second question that speaks to the relevance of Marxist um, arguments about migration for the assessment of migration from the left perspective is kind of more focused in the present. So the left criticism of open borders condemns liberal hypocrisy by emphasizing how, say, cheap labor benefits wealthy elites and harms poor workers. And it's easy to be humanitarian, they say, by taking everyone in or by arguing to take everyone in if you're not the one who is going to bear the brunt of globalization. So class politics is central and the forces of the left must engage with it once again. And this is the kind of leftist argument against open borders. But the worry is, and again, this refers us back to what Marx says about the distinction between English proletarians and Irish proletarians, is that pitting the interests of migrant workers against those of domestic workers gives us a kind of distorted role of what the impact of social classes is in our understanding of history. So Marx was the first to warn us about the devastating impact that thinking about class as divided along national boundaries has for the struggles of the working class as a whole. And this is connected to his kind of general analysis of globalization under capitalism and the role of states and other international regimes in enabling capitalist exploitation. So let me just explain this very briefly. To understand capitalism, Marx emphasizes, we should understand political conflicts as conflicts not between states, but as conflicts between social classes. And this is where Marx makes a big advance compared to Enlightenment political philosophy, compared to Hegel. Hegel thought that the units, the agents that were relevant in world history were states. Kant thought the same. Fichte thought the same. And Marx thought that in the light of the conflicts between the state and commercial society, we have to think about individuals aligned across different collective subjectivities and so we have to think about the role of social classes. So different social classes explain different positions with regard to global processes of production and exchange. And so an analysis of politics that is based on class rather than state-based identities, nationalism, cultural cleavages, is what grounds the Marxist account of the state that Bob was talking about. So... Of course, on the one hand, states, as Bob explained, make and enforce laws, 
And since the condition under which they can make and enforce laws is that they have a territory and the territory is demarcated by borders and the borders have to distinguish groups of people from one another, there is a sense in which culture is relevant, political culture is relevant to thinking about different social groups. But the problem with treating migration as a problem, the problem with focusing on migration as a problem, is that it reifies this distinction between cultural others as opposed to others that are demarcated by social class, which is the relevant unit of conflict in the capitalist state. So basically, Marx says that the division between a foreign and a domestic worker that is based on culture is just a narrow application of that larger division that is the political division between different states that have different boundaries. And so this opposition leads to a kind of reification of agency and as Marx puts it, and I quote, is the secret of the impotence of the working class despite its organization. So the division of workers between domestic workers and migrant workers, the division in the proletarian between the Irish proletarian and the English proletarian, the division between the Greek proletarian and the German proletarian, are actually the source and the root cause of the conflicts as we see them, but also of the inability of the working class to advance with regard to its own causes. And this division, again, this is a quotation from Marx, plays in the hands of the ruling elites. He says, it's artificially kept alive and intensified by the press, by the academia, by the papers, by all means at the disposal of the ruling elites. So Marx's insight when we talk about migration is that this artificial division between migrant workers who threaten jobs and domestic workers who have made social gains in rights and claims and salaries and so on through decades of class struggle basically undermines the working class movement as a whole. So this is why it's essential, Marx explains, to avoid constructing a hierarchy of rights and benefits for some members of the working class that leaves aside other members. So the real threat to the labor movement aren't migrant workers and also not open borders. And I'll explain a bit on this before concluding. It's not true that open borders serve the interests of capitalist ruling classes. What serves the interests of a capitalist ruling classes are migrants that don't have rights. So it's, not, it's not just the flow that is a problem, it's just the number of people. The problem is that when, the number of, when there's a number of people who also doesn't have rights, that is what constitutes a threat for the ruling capitalist elites. So it's not true, as many on the radical left say, that employers and liberal elites favor the movement of people as such. What they do favor is the movement of people without rights. And the way we can guarantee that we have enough people without rights is to let the liberal state police the border and decide on who is admitted and who is excluded. So the real threat to domestic workers are not migrant workers. The real threat is the capitalist state whose interests are preserved by political and economic elites who make discretionary decisions on who to admit and who to exclude, often with the consent of the ruling classes as filtered through electoral processes of representative democracy like the ones that I have just described. So the vulnerability of both the source, the common source of vulnerability of both domestic and foreign migrant workers is the fact that the state has the ability to police the border and the state is given this ability with the recognition of the working classes as filtered through mechanisms of legal participation, constitutional empowerment, and so on. 
So this is the kind of mechanism, and this is a vulnerability by which both domestic and foreign workers are kept in check. This is the mechanism through which their agency is undermined in the workplace. This is the mechanism through which the bargaining power of unions is ultimately weakened. This is the mechanism through which the reserve army of labor that Marx talks about uh, in various works is maintained both outside the borders of the state and inside the borders of the state. So this, and I will conclude here, is what Marx claims, the secret by which the capitalist state maintains its power. And that class, Marx also says, is fully aware of this secret. It's therefore in, in the interest of those who fight the capitalist class, it's in the interest of workers as a class, to try and separate to the question of migration from the question of the rights of workers as, the threat, as threatened by the present of migrants. And it's also in the interest of workers not to detach questions of admission, so open borders are about admissions, and questions about integration. What are the rights that immigrants should have in a liberal state? Because the left has to align these questions if it is to fight effectively capitalism. The exclusion of migrants from the workplace and from access to welfare rights is enabled by the exclusion of migrants at the border. And that's why the radical left can't separate the question of open borders from the question of giving rights to immigrants. It must maintain both questions together and it must reject exclusion on both fronts. Thank you. Is this, is this microphone working? Yeah, great. So um, we do have a very short amount of time for discussion. I think there's some flexibility. I know we're scheduled to finish at 8, but apparently there is some flexibility. So with the, with the permission of the speakers, we may be able to go on till about 10 past 8. Um, I will um, take questions in groups to facilitate audience participation. Please... Please um, keep your questions short and make it a question. Um, uh, we'll start um, with the person in the middle with her hand up. Wait, wait for the, if you could introduce if you could introduce yourself very briefly and wait for the mic. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Thank you. First, I just want to uh, you know I think something should be said. I want to express my disgust at the twice vandalized, you know, uh, Marx's grave, you know, in Highgate Cemetery. Um, in the last few months, uh, I don't think there's been any media coverage, you know, in any, any of the social media, anything about this. Anyway, I just want to express my disgust about that. Um, secondly, you know, um, also express my surprise that nobody among the speakers has raised the issue of the essence of Marxism and the solution to capitalism and imperialism. Um, could I just read a quote from Lenin, just quickly? If, if you could maybe just keep it short, because we, yeah. we want to get as no, many people as possible. I want to ask possible. why this issue has not been raised, because to confine Marxism to the doctrine of, doctrine of the class struggle means curtailing Marxism, distorting it, reducing it to something which is acceptable to the bourgeoisie. Only he or she is a Marxist who extends the recognition of the class struggle to the recognition of the dictatorship of the proletariat. Now the stage is for the necessity for the international dictatorship of the proletariat. Please, I'm asking why nobody is talking about this, because this is about talk, using, applying Marxism in a living way. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
the person with the blue t-shirt. Thank you. And we'll take one more. Um, the gentleman in the front on the right. Uh, thanks. Uh, Ewan McGahey, King's College, London. Uh, don't you think it's obvious that if Marx was around today, he, he would be voting to remain in the European uh, <laughs> u- u- Union? Uh, be, be, because uh, uh, he wouldn't want to break it up. Uh, he'd want to revolutionize it. He wouldn't want to see the workers of Europe uh, divided and ruled. Uh, he'd want to see social justice spreading beyond our borders and, uh, uh, because we enhance our sovereignty being, by being part of the European Union. Thanks. Thanks, thanks very much. So, um, I, so we've got the dictatorship of the proletariat, the reconstitution of authority, and workers of Europe unite. Um, <laughs> I will offer end to the, the questions to the panel. We, we, each of you is free to respond but not obliged to respond. We'll start um, uh, with Bob if, if you would like to say anything. Please keep it short as well so we can have another round of questions. Actually, I did refer to the dictatorship of the proletariat when I referred to Marx's comments on the civil war in France, on the role of the commune as the finally discovered mechanism for the emancipation of the oppressed classes. In the first draft of his paper on the civil war, he says, if you want to know what the dictatorship of the proletariat looks like, look at the commune. And I think we can say that if we want to understand the dictatorship of the proletariat, we have to understand it as the opposite of representative democracy. It's a form of direct democracy. How that might relate to imperialism, Marx didn't write on imperialism. It was a term when he was writing that referred to political empires, for example, uh, the French empire, the French second empire. What he talked about was colonialism, and Leo was also referring to that. Had he been around now, he might well have used the word imperialism. But he wrote a great deal about the increasing integration of the world market, and I think that will be one of the mechanisms that has to do with the fragmentation of the working class, the divisions within the working class and so forth. And I would see neoliberalism as a project for the completion of the world market, which gives increasing power to capital because it divides and rules workers not only internally, Irish versus British, but also in terms of the fetishization, fetish, of competitiveness and so forth. And we all have to sacrifice our interests in the name of the competitiveness of our national economies or indeed our transnational bourgeoisies. I've said enough, so I'm going to let somebody else say something about something else. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Bob. Casas? 
Well, I'm glad, I'm, I'm glad to say I persuaded you. So, <laughs> <laughs> so clearly that's worked. Um, now, uh, would Marx have voted for, uh, it's an inter for to, to remain in the European Union? It's an interesting idea. Um, one can extend it. You know, would, would you have voted for an improvement in the Spitzenkandidaten process, for instance? <laughs> would you have said a few more things about how to democratize this, that, and the other? Um, but let's be serious. Um, well, let's think like Marx, which is what uh, Peter suggested here. And let's start with what we have, not what we would like to have which was my point. Let's observe reality as it is, in the face, in a hard, calm, and um, unfetishized way, to the degree to which we can. I believe that Marx would have done that. And when you do this, you realize that the European Union is not what you wish it to be, not what you imagine it to be, but something else. Um, the question then becomes, how do you transform Europe? which is what you're implying here. But if you think that you're going to transform it through the European Union, all you're doing is, you're projecting, is to project on the European Union your own desires. In other words, fetishism. <laughs> to transform Europe, which is what we all want, you've got to start with what we've got, see where it's going, work out whether it's reformable or not, and work out what you're going to do in order to take the world where you want it to be. And for that, Marx, again, is important, and he thinks of rapture all the time. He was a revolutionary. He wasn't a stepwise improver of things. Um, in the case of the European Union, I believe that, yeah, he would have argued for radical rupture, not improvement through um, careful voting in the Euro elections in about a month and a half time. <laughs> um, Thanks. Pete? Peter? On Marx's grave. Uh, I'm, I'm, I mean, obviously, I'm not happy. Well, no, I am happy. Lenin said that statues are for pigeons to shit on. And I'm sure that Marx would have had the same approach. Um, Lenin wanted to be buried in a grave next to his mother. He didn't want all that nonsense because they were serious people. Uh, and so I take the vandalising of, of Marx's grave to be uh, a sign that he's back. Uh, and since I value uh, his thinking and I value his way of thinking and I want, I really advise you to study it because you will learn a lot and we need people to learn a lot about the contemporary world if we're going to change it. Uh, I'm glad he's back. He used to be vandalised all the time. It went out of fashion during neoliberalism, so I'm really glad. Um, the, uh, the revolution, I think we did talk, um, the dictatorship of the proletariat, Lenin means the revolution. I want the revolution, and we did talk about it as a revolutionary doctrine. I think, indeed, that's part of the problem, and where I don't, although I agree with Leia on immigration, I don't entirely agree on, um, uh, on the analysis. The problem is there isn't a class struggle going on. Unless you have Warren Buffett's version, there is a class struggle and we're winning it. Um, but um, I don't think there is a class struggle going on. And so the whole question and how we present and argue around uh, immigration changes. I haven't got time to do that now. But um, I would say that. Finally, on authority of law, uh, on the authority of the criminal law, and it, it probably has a wider application, I want to restore the authority of the criminal law, but to do that, we have to, we have to um, minimise it. We have to reduce it down to um, a law that, uh, that actually does what we want to do. It. I want to abolish it eventually somewhere down the road, but to do that, we need a minimal criminal law that has real authority. The criminal law we have lacking authority because we don't trust each other, and that needs, needs political change so that we can begin to trust each other. Leia? So I'll, maybe I'll just comment briefly on the on the European on, on Marx and Remain. I don't think 
I don't think I'm too far from speculation if I say that Marx would say that the European Union embodies the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. And I think he'd be right to say that, just to go back to the dictatorship of the proletariat point. And I think he would say that the United Kingdom or any sovereign state that exits the European Union also embodies the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. So the question is, we have this choice between these two kinds of dictatorships of the bourgeoisie, and we have to make a decision on which of these two dictatorships, the rejection of which of these two dictatorships is more likely or less likely to advance the cause of the working class as a global movement. And I think the answer to that question can't be leave or remain, which is why I have a problem with the way in which the terms are, are, are set and the whole debate is conducted. Because I think, and I'm relatively confident in saying, Marx would say, we have to be contextual. He's a Hegelian, and so we have to look at the conditions of working class struggle in the particular countries that we are examining. So he would say, the debate around the European Union in Greece is very different under you know, Eurozone conditions from what it's in Britain, from what it's in Poland, from what it's in France, from what it's in any of these countries and candidate countries. And so the debate has to be a debate which is pragmatic, strategic, about what are the chances that the left can advance the cause of the working class as a whole, given these constraints. I'm pretty confident that... Jacob Rees-Moggs and Theresa Mays would not be the kind of people that Marx would want to associate with in rejecting the dictatorship of the European Union. So that's the only thing I have to say on Remain, which is not very optimistic. It's cynical, but I think Marx was pretty cynical. So, I, again, I don't think I'm too far from the spirit here. Thanks, thanks very much. We're going we're to we're take one.